The following message comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian faith, and yet it is one of the hardest things for us to do. Too often, it has not been modeled well in our homes, in our families, among friends, and sadly even in our churches. And yet, it is one of the most powerful signs of a changed life, that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us and that we're living for God's glory when we forgive. It runs counter to everything that is natural, everything that is easy in our hearts, and even counter to everything in our culture, everything that screams rights and demanding and getting your way and self-assertion All of those things are contrary to biblical forgiveness, and yet it is what we are called to do. Please turn to Matthew 18, if you haven't already. Um, If you have the Black Pew Bible, you'll see the page number there, 881. Matthew 18, and we're going to start this look at biblical forgiveness by looking at one of the most well-known passages on forgiveness. We're going to use this, we're going to get some ideas and definition from this, and then I'd like to tackle how we can allow this truth to change us in our attitude and perspective on forgiveness. And so the setup to our text is that Jesus had been teaching on um, private prayer and then also on what we ought to do to make things right if there are offenses against us. If someone has a fault um, against us, we are to go and to take it to them. If they don't listen, then we bring another brother or sister along. And if they don't listen to that, finally we involve the church so that they would repent, so that they would change. In response to this, though, Peter asks a question in verse 21, Matthew 18, 21. Peter came up. Of course, it was Peter, right? If you know anything about Peter, of course it was him. He came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I still forgive him? And here Peter thinks he's being really generous, up to seven times. And in response, Jesus blows him out of the water And says in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, we could say merely, but up to 77 times, or some translations have 70 times seven. And then Jesus proceeds to tell a story, which we'll read in just a second. But I think in Peter's question, we have a good setup to our discussion of forgiveness today. And so really, I think there's two elements to Peter's question. And the first is Jesus is there a limit to my forgiveness? How many times? I mean, all right, let's be honest. Let's be real here, Jesus. How many times do I have to forgive this same brother who's coming and offending? And by offering seven, again, Peter thinks he's being really generous. Many of the Jewish teachers and scribes and others said two or three times is about enough, and then you're done. You don't need to offer forgiveness anymore. And so Peter ups it a a little bit and asks seven times, how many times is too much? But then secondly, I think implied in Peter's question is this question of justice. Do I really need to sit there and just take it time after time? So not only the number of times, but but what is my role in this process of being wronged, being harmed? Do I just take it right, you know, right in the chin seven times or 77 times, as Jesus says? And so to drive this point home, Jesus, as he often does, tells a beautiful story. So let's read that in verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, in our translation today, the equivalent of billions of dollars, okay, over the top amount of money, this this, uh, slave was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his master commanded that he be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. Okay, so this was a just restitution or payment for the amount of the offense that was incalculable that since he didn't have anything to pay with, that essentially their lives would be in exchange for the payment to be thrown into debtor's prison. Verse 26, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the master of that slave felt compassion. He released him and forgave him the debt. So here we have the incalculable debt that this slave had no means to pay back. Many lifetimes would not be enough for him to repay. 
And so he pleads uh, for mercy from this master. And it says in verse 27, the master had compassion. He had pity. He had pity on the slave. He releases him from his debt, restoring him to his status, and he completely canceled the debt. And at this point in the story, Peter's going, okay, that's great. The king forgave him once the debt, but now Jesus really drives the point home in verse 28. Uh, Sorry, verse, uh, yes, 28. But that slave went out. The idea is that he immediately went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, a decent amount of money equivalent to the low tens of thousands of dollars today, a decent amount of money, but nothing like what he owed before. And he seized him, that is that fellow slave, and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave, just like he had done, fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. The same exact words that he had just used. But, verse 30, he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he would pay back all that was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their master all that had happened. Then summoning him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, okay, the billions of dollars, because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your slave, your fellow slave, in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his master moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus concludes punching it home to Peter and to his disciples. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And so, again, this powerful, powerful story that Jesus paints a picture in extreme ways. So Jesus, you know, Peter thought the 70 times 7 was extreme, and then Jesus gives this extreme example of a debt that most slaves would never be able to even accumulate um, on, this, on this king. And yet, this king uh, forgave this slave. And so, the picture, I think, is pretty clear here that the king represents God, this master who owns everything, who has all these resources. And in this picture, Peter, the disciples and followers of Jesus today, are to see themselves as the first slave, that we have been forgiven this incredible debt for our sin, which we just sang about, we just rejoice and celebrated in the Lord's Supper. And so, the response that is not easy, that is not natural, that this world wouldn't encourage us to do, but the response that is appropriate because of what God has done for us is that we would in turn forgive those who wrong us. By comparison, our response to God, the wrongs done to us, are to be seen as relatively minor in that light. And so, if we fail to forgive as the first servant did to his fellow servant, we ought to see ourselves in the place or in the position that this is contrary to God's ways, that this is not the way the disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, acts in their lives, that we are to be forgiving people. And so a key idea that I want to drive home several times today is this, that forgiven children forgive. This slave, if we think of it in a parent-child relationship as we are before God, this slave had been forgiven. He had been restored. He had been uh, set up and cleared of all debt. And so the response on his behalf ought to have been to forgive. The forgiven child should forgive others. And, And before we get into some of the outplaying of this biblical forgiveness, I think it's important for us to define forgiveness well from this text and from some others. And so I'd like to offer a definition here in just a few phrases simply summarizing that forgiveness cancels debt. Forgiveness on our behalf of others cancels the debt that they owe us. And so first of all, we see that forgiveness speaks truth. So notice in verse 24, we have a clear picture of how much this slave owed his master. So 10,000 talents, again, the equivalent in our day, if we try to make sense of it, is an incredible amount, okay? Uh, uh, virtually no economic relationship in their day could you actually accumulate a debt of 10,000 talents. It was unimaginable debt that was there. And so the king and the slave, and in turn the other slaves, because they come and report it, they all knew the debt. They knew the problem. And so part of our response 
or our understanding of forgiveness is that we need to see the truth. We need to call out the wrong that is wrong. We need to call out the sin and the evil that is done to us. We need to acknowledge it. So what, what forgiveness in Scripture is not saying is just ignore everything they do. Act like it isn't there, okay? Just whistle a happy tune and just imagine that they didn't say those words to you that made your blood boil, or that they didn't do those harmful actions, or that they don't owe you all that money. So it's not ignoring the truth, but it's actually acknowledging and speaking the truth. But the second thing we see in biblical forgiveness is that it takes pity. And so the, the, the king, as we see here, is in a higher status. He's in a higher place, and he shows kindness. He shows pity on him. It says, after he saw the pleading, he looked on him with forgiveness. And so if the picture there is God looking on us with pity and showing mercy to us in our debt and our need, how much more should we identify with fellow servants, fellow slaves who rebel against God? And see, what happens when we deny forgiveness in this definition, this biblical definition, when we fail to take pity on others, we fail to see them as fellow uh, humans that are made in God's image. We put them down several rungs and we elevate ourselves. But in biblical forgiveness, we actually need to take pity on them. And so we need to see them as God sees them. They are made in his image and they are worth the love and kindness that we can show. No matter what they say, no matter what they do. But then thirdly, we see that forgiveness absorbs loss. And so that's where, in a summary definition, forgiveness cancels debt. It absorbs the loss that is there. And notice we said the loss that the king took was an incredible amount. It was an over-the-top amount, but he absorbed that loss, and he canceled it. On top of that, he not only canceled the debt, but he restored him back to his status, okay? How many of you, okay, if you loan some money, maybe it's to your, to your child, they're like, hey, dad, I need some help with college, I'm a little broke, can you loan me a couple hundred bucks, I'll pay you back, I promise, right? Wink, wink, nod, nod, hand behind the back, right? They don't do it. How willing are we the next time to be like, yeah, sure, in fact, you know what, it was 200 last time, I'll give you 400 this time, right? We're like, no way, right? But this king not only absorbed the loss, but he chose to restore him, to establish that relationship again. And so a failure to forgive is a failure to absorb the loss. In our day, it's usually not billions of dollars, but it's a refusal to give in because of my pride, because maybe that is a financial amount that I'm not willing to forgive of somebody else. My standing among others who know what they did, I feel like I need to, to stand over them. And often it's just not willing to let go of the hurt and the pain, thinking that if I hold on to this, I'm holding on to something precious. But instead, it's something that will actually eat us away. And so forgiveness biblically absorbs the loss. And then lastly, forgiveness seeks reconciliation. As we said before here, uh, the king moved in reconciliation. He released him and established the status that was there. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how this happens because this is difficult and it all isn't always possible. But forgiveness aims for reconciliation. It has a heart that is willing or that desires reconciliation, even if it is not reciprocated by the party that we forgive. And so biblical forgiveness, as we see in this text, and as we're going to springboard um, through the rest of the message here, it speaks truth. It acknowledges what you have done or said to me is wrong, that it is sinful for their good so they can repent and so that I can view it accurately. It takes pity on them because they're made in God's image, because they're violating God's commands. It absorbs the loss. It's willing to take the loss to our pride, to our finances, to our standing, and even our hurt. And finally, it's, it moves towards reconciliation. And so if I could summarize maybe in, in a different way, when we see forgiveness in Scripture, biblical forgiveness, it's a threefold promise. I am making a promise to you who hurt me in some way that, first of all, I will not bring this up to you in a way that hurts you. I say, wait a second, we just said speaking the truth, right? We can acknowledge the wrong, we can acknowledge the harm, but notice it's, it's bringing up hurt in a way that doesn't hurt you. 
In other words, it's, a, it's bringing up so that we can talk, so that we can deal with it, so you, the one that has offended me, have the opportunity to seek God's forgiveness and do the right thing. I'm not bringing it up so I can jab you, so I can stab you again in the side. And so a promise to not bring it up to hurt. Secondly, it's a promise that says, I will not smear you or hurt you before others. Okay? Maybe you say, my problem is I'm not bringing it up against them. I don't want to talk to them, right? But I am very willing to go and talk to everybody else about how wrong it is, about how much it hurt. And you know, the sad part is we baptize this in Christian language. Well, I'm just trying to help them so that they're not hurt by the same person, right? Or I'm going to give them some insider info, hint, hint, nod, nod. I'm not going to say the name, but everybody knows who I'm talking about, right? And so I'm not going to smear you before others because that isn't actually helping with the problem. And I just add here, just on a practical note, if you're seeking counsel from a pastor, from a trusted friend, okay, again, you're disclosing that so that you can grow, so that you can move to reconciliation, not to smear them. And then thirdly, it's a promise that says, I will not dwell on the offense in my heart. This is probably the hardest one, because often when we're unwilling to forgive, we actually want to dwell on it. We want to remember the hurt. We want to rehearse the pain. We want to rehearse the words and all that is done because, again, we feel like it gives me some power. If I remember all the ways that you hurt, that you hurt me, then, then I can have some satisfaction about how bad it really was in that way. But sadly, this kind of response, it doesn't help that person, but it also doesn't help you. And so to, to move on in forgiveness, we have to pray by God's grace to not dwell on the offense in a negative way. And so forgiveness cancels debt. It makes a promise to move to others in their good. But as we move into what this looks like, I want to point out some of the dynamics at play. And we see this in this text and others in Scripture, and I think hopefully diagramming it out a little bit, if you're a visual learner, okay, hopefully this will help you um, as it's helped me. So what are the dynamics at play? What are the relationships that are happening when we talk about biblical forgiveness? And so the first one that is often overlooked in just, just cultural talk about forgiveness is this one, and that is vertical. Human forgiveness depends on divine forgiveness. True, I should add, true biblical forgiveness depends on divine forgiveness. Um, in, in a book written by Tim Keller called Forgive, which I'll reference a few times in here, it's been very helpful for me in thinking about this. Here's what he says. No one learns to love or forgive by just trying it. Instead, we learn to love or forgive by experiencing it and passing it on to others. We don't learn how to forgive by mustering up the courage, by somehow rationalizing and making sense. Because when we rationalize out of a place of hurt and pain and sorrow, we can't, on our own human logic, it doesn't lead to this. This is contrary to our human logic and our sinful nature. And so we can learn to forgive by experiencing it first. And so as we think of the vertical, which is God's forgiveness to us, it moves us and it motivates us. First John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. And I would add in a parallel way, we can forgive biblically because God has first loved us. And so it's important as we think about this aspect of forgiveness that we begin and we always keep in mind the vertical. But then secondly, and this is important, before we move to actually say the words, okay? We often think of forgiveness with this step, which we're going to get to, which is the other person. But before we get to that, we need to understand God's forgiveness of us through Christ and then internally forgive. Forgiveness of others begins and continues in my heart. It's a disposition of forgiveness, And so we see this um, in our text in Matthew 18, when Peter asks, how many times do I need to forgive? Jesus says, 70 times 7. In other words, Jesus says, we need to forgive, have a disposition of forgiveness as many times as needed, as many times as required for the offender who comes, but also for in my heart. My heart needs to forgive them as many times as it comes up in my mind. As many times as bitterness and vengeance and hatred wells up inside of me, I need to forgive. And before we, again, talk about bringing it out to others, we need to be reminded that it begins and it continues in my heart. 
And so when the vertical is there, God's forgiveness of me, I have experienced it. When God has worked in me the desire to forgive, then we can talk about the horizontal forgiveness. That forgiveness is granted and reconciliation is offered. We're going to get into what that means in a minute. But this is the part where we actually articulate forgiveness. We state the truth. We take pity on them. We absorb the loss. And then we move to them in reconciliation. But the problem, which we're going to see in a little bit, is if we only think of forgiveness this way, we're never going to get it in the right way, in the right attitude, in the right perspective. Because if you have hurt me, if you've offended me, and all I can think about is you as an awful person that I can't believe you said those words, then what kind of desire or motivation am I going to have to forgive them? Why should I? Right? How, how do you deserve this forgiveness? But at first, I've experienced God's forgiveness. If I have asked for mercy and grace in my heart to have a heart of forgiveness, then I can move to forgiveness. So how do the internal and horizontal relate? Okay, and this is a big question. Even among Christians in in counseling and discipleship and a lot of things, how does that internal heart forgiveness match with um, the horizontal? And we can't tackle all of the arguments and all the things today, but I'd like to look at two texts um, that are found in the Gospels as well um, that can help us, I think, to better understand this. And so the first is found in Mark chapter 11. And you can turn there. I also have it up on the screen here. And so what, what Jesus is saying in Mark 11, well, I'll read it, and then we'll get into it. Okay, he says this, Mark 11, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you for your offenses. Okay, so the context is you're, you're worshiping publicly in the temple or tabernacle, and as you're praying to God, as you're, as you're praising him, like we did, reflecting on the Lord's Supper, or taking a pause, or perhaps during a message or sermon, you remember that someone has something against you. You remember that word that your friend said last week? You remember that thing that your child did you this morning to really fire you up and to anger you? Okay? And in your heart, there's a temptation to sin. There's a, there's a, a fork in the road that needs to happen. When that comes, their thought, what they've done to me, what am I going to do with it? And Jesus says, while this is happening, even in public worship, he says, you need to forgive. You need to stop what you're doing in worship and celebration of God and service to him. You need to stop and you need to forgive if they have sinned against you. So some offenses, some slights against you, some angst that you have because of what they have done, we simply need to cover. We need to give to God right where we are, driving down the car, at work, even in church. We need to give it to God, realizing God's forgiven me, and I need to have a heart of forgiveness. But if we simply look at Mark 11, then it can lead to, we're going to talk about, uh, I think, a bad model here in a minute, which is only focusing on the offended party, which is me. So if I have been sinned against... Do we just cover? Do we only look at at Mark 11 here and cover that sin, give it to God, and just forget it? Well, a parallel passage, uh, another passage we see in Scripture, I think helps us to understand the nuance of what's happening, and that's found in Luke 17. Again, you can turn there or it's up on the screen. A, A similar passage, here's what Jesus says. If your brother or sister sins against you, okay, So it's clear, they've wronged you, you've been offended by their wrong. What does he say? Rebuke him or confront him. Forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day, returns to you seven times, saying, repent, you shall forgive him. So the first, in public worship, you remember someone has wronged you. Forgive them, give it to God. There's no no, uh, mention there of going to them, confronting them, rebuking them, etc. But here we come to Luke 17, And Jesus clearly says, you've been wronged against, you've been sinned. Part of your obedience to God in response is that you ought to go and confront them or rebuke them and forgive them. And so two responsibilities Jesus points out here is that when you've been sinned against, you need to confront the offender who sins against you. This is the speak truth. 
This is going with the right heart response, etc. Now, this doesn't mean that we confront everyone about everything. Praise God for that, right? <laughs> because one, that's exhausting for me because I can find slights and offenses everywhere, okay? The slight-o-meter that I might pull out is beeping wherever I go because I can always find slights. I can always find even sins against me. But it's also good for the one who has done wrong and has done offenses because what kind of relationship can we have if all of my disposition to you and all your disposition to me is to find all the problems? And so I think it's helpful to notice the second phrase when Jesus says he has sinned against you seven times a day, okay, that it's a clear, deliberate offense. It's a wrong that is done, that they recognize, that you recognize, and that it's a personal sin to you. And so Jesus says, in that case, you need to go and confront them. Because you know it, you recognize it, it hurts and it stings and it hurts you, so you're not going to be able to move on from it. But you need to confront for their sake, because they need to be confronted with their sin. They need to know, and they need to be given the opportunity to repent. And so we confront the offender, and we forgive the offender. So, do you see the tension here? At times, Jesus says, you need to cover the sin, take it to God directly. And at times, when we are sinned against, we need to confront or to rebuke. But one, one thing, hopefully, that might tie the thread together is what is the call or command in both of these verses? I'll give you a hint. It's a word that starts with an F. It's the title of our sermon today. Forgiveness, okay? So notice the covering is not true obedience if forgiveness doesn't happen, right? Do you see that? It's not ignore. It's not don't deal with it. It's take it to God. The confronting is not rebuking or confronting in a biblical Christ-honoring way if my confronting or my rebuking is not done in a spirit of forgiveness. And if it doesn't lead to, at least in my heart, and then out loud, me offering forgiveness, then, then we've failed the command. So if you are a coverer, and you don't have to raise your hand, but you're like, I just cover it all. I just never talk to anybody about anything, okay? Um, my sister, we would tell her her, her character in Toy Story is Rex, you know, with the little arms, who says, I hate confrontations, right? You're that person, and you're like, I don't ever want to talk about anybody about any of the things they've done wrong, okay? Then you need to consider what Jesus is saying here, that at times we need to go. When the sin, when the sin is personal, when it's brought up in our minds, when we need to deal with it. But for those of you who are like, I am the king of confrontation, okay? And let me tell you all the ways that you're not confronting people like they need to be confronted, right? then perhaps you need to be balanced out a little bit to realize that not every fault against you, not every harm or slight or even sin against you needs that bold confrontation. And so forgiveness is key in both of them. And so I'd say maybe a, a simple way to perhaps ease some of the tension here is that when you are sinned against to the point that it strains your relationship with that person, you can't see them, you can't think of them, you can't get a text from them without thinking of what they've done wrong with you, then that is a clear reason to go and to confront them or to challenge them about that, to give them an opportunity to see their sin and to, and to seek restoration. And I'd like to give two quick examples from Scripture that maybe help to illustrate this. Um, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen had given a sermon, a deacon there in the church. He'd given the sermon. The response by the Jewish leaders when he confronted them of what they wrong was to take him outside and to stone him. So as he is in the middle of this process of being stoned, his body being broken to the point of death. He lifts his eyes to heaven, and he says just a sweet, amazing prayer to God. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He forgave them. Now, were any of those present looking to be confronted? <laughs> were they in a position that they were going to repent and stop literally hurling stones at his body? No. There was, there was no opportunity in that moment for change to happen, and yet, out of his heart, he confront, or excuse me, he covered that. He forgave them publicly. We could also think of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But here's another interesting illustration. When Paul witnessed Peter, another apostle, wrote some books of the Bible, right? We read about Peter here. When he noticed Peter doing wrong, to certain believers, 
because they weren't living up to the standards of Judaizers, okay? Peter didn't offer favor, didn't offer fellowship to them. Paul saw that, that, Peter, you are wrong here. And he goes to the apostle Peter, part of the trifecta, the inner circle of Jesus, and he confronts him. He confronts him to his face and he says, Peter, you are sinning because you're shying away from these. You're refusing Christian fellowship and Peter, you're sinning. And so he challenges Peter so that Peter would repent and also for the good of those believers, right? And so here we have Paul clearly confronting. And so we cover at times when appropriate and we confront at times when appropriate. And so forgiven children forgive. But there's one aspect that perhaps you've been thinking, or if you haven't, let me help you to think about it. And that is, we've been talking about the offended party, right? What about the offender? What is their role in all of this? And a big question looms, and that is, what about justice? What about dealing with the wrong? Does this even matter in this discussion of forgiveness? And I think, sadly, a disservice has been done often in in Christianity when talking about forgiveness because often we only focus on or only think about the person who has offended, the person who has done wrong. And so I want to tackle this question um, for for the rest of our time here, really, and then moving into application. So how does justice and forgiveness happen? And I want to acknowledge that much harm has been done in society and specifically um, in churches and in religious groups by a failure to uphold justice and only focusing on forgiveness. So I, you, you know these examples, but Roman Catholic priests who have abused and have been covered up and been moved to other dioceses, and they've been, the, the Roman Catholic Church has refused to deal with things in a just way. And before we start throwing stones to other churches and groups, even among gospel-preaching evangelical churches, abuse has been ignored. It's been covered up. Quick forgiveness has been challenged by those who've been harmed, and then things have been moved on and acted like nothing is wrong. Many homes, Christian or not in America, have seen a failure to appeal to justice, to those who are vulnerable, those who are victims, have not been given the justice that they deserve. And sadly, even times where justice has been appealed to, it has not been accomplished as it ought to be, where the weak are defended, where uh, those who harm are put away and, and are, um, are, are dealt with in a just way. So we see injustice in our world, even when steps are made to pursue it. And I just say, before we move on, that my heart aches over those stories. Um, it's tragic when people take their power and abuse others. That there's no justification, that there's no, there's no reason to defend or to act or to, to blame those things away. And please remember that God sees and God knows, and God will just uh, deal justly in the end. But we're talking about here on this earth right now. And so I'd like to put forward a, a uh, definition of justice that can help us as we move forward here. It's a long one, but let me break it down. Divine, div, uh, justice is divinely righteous action by God or humans that promotes well-being and equality of humanity. Okay? So it's righteous, it's just, it's right, it's pure, done by God or by humans, often imperfectly, but it's righteous action. It promotes well-being and equality. It defends against wrong and harm. And then the second part is how that happens. It occurs in punishing oppressors or those who are unrighteous, and it vindicates or, or defends the oppressed and the righteous. So it deals punitively um, with those who have done wrong, but it also defends or vindicates those who are oppressed. And so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to walk through three models of forgiveness that I think are poor models, and I'd like to, to uphold one, specifically targeted this question of justice. Okay, so you remember my diagram from before, the vertical, internal, horizontal. Well, where does justice fit into this? So the first one I would describe as cheap grace. With cheap grace, the entire weight is on the offended party. Okay, so you see that up there, that it's all on the offended person. This person who's been wronged or harmed is called to forgive without conditions. Often there's a failure to guard or to protect this person. And sadly, when that protection and guard is not put in place, it actually leads to more abuse and harm happening. 
Because that very plea of just forgive, just say the words, but we're not going to deal with what's wrong, is actually what those abusers prey on so that they can abuse and harm more. And so I say that this is cheap grace because this is an act of just throw out grace, just forgive, but it's not actually dealt with in a helpful way. And so to the victim, the one harmed against, this is like a slap in the face. Here's how one lady described it when she suffered immense abuse and there was an inadequate response of Christians. It was this cheap grace. She said, they wanted me to forgive so that they could move on. I suppose once I forgave, all would be well for them. Christianity, it seemed, was concerned with individual forgiveness, not social justice. And so this is a poor model. This is a flawed model because all it focuses on is those who are wronged with no recognition or appeal to justice. So biblical justice and forgiveness must be held together, but it's so much broader, it's so much deeper, it's so much better than this. Here's the second model I describe as little grace. With little grace, the entire weight is on the offender, okay? You see here, the weight is on the offender, but absent the vertical and absent the internal, it's actually on him or her to earn forgiveness, It's a transactional model. And so here's how one author described this transactional forgiveness, which, by the way, she was appealing to. She said, first, the victim, who's been wronged, confronts the perpetrator. If the perpetrator refuses to confess, forgiveness is not extended, okay, by the one who's done wrong. No forgiveness is offered. There's nothing more the victim can do. But if the perpetrator responds by confessing or apologizing, then the victim is allowed to work through his or her feelings, and eventually, maybe months or years down the line, ready to bestow the grace of non-anger on the perpetrator. But here's what she says, but the real condition for forgiveness is enough weeping, imploring, apologizing by the perpetrator. If he or she doesn't do this, then forgiveness is not given. And so what this model says is that in order to move me in my heart and in my words and actions to forgive you, you need to earn my forgiveness. You need to say enough. You need to do enough. You need to implore enough. You need to prostrate yourself enough before me so that maybe weeks, months, years down the road, maybe I will decide to forgive you. This is really appealing to those who've been offended in a culture that emphasizes rights, that emphasizes um, you need to do everything in your power to, to fix things your way. But again, we're, we're, we're getting rid of God and the heart here. In the end, is this really forgiveness? Or is it a form of payback masquerading as forgiveness in which the perpetrator must do penance or earn back a level of favor? How much is enough? Who is the judge of if he or she has done enough to earn my forgiveness? Further, a lack of internal forgiveness will actually eat away at the victim. While I am waiting for him or her to earn all this favor back to me, it is stewing inside of me. I am holding on to this, and it's going to destroy me inside. Not only this relationship, but every other relationship in which I am in, and ultimately my relationship with God. It leads to bitterness and hatred. And so where is the vertical dimension? Where is the understanding of God's forgiveness of me? Where is viewing the offender as made in the image of God? This is not the way of Christ, not the way of forgiveness. And then here's the third poor model and that is no grace. No grace. The weakness of this model is that it gets rid of the vertical, it gets rid of the internal, and it actually wants nothing to do with the horizontal either. This is the view of many in our society, in which now it's becoming very popular to describe forgiveness as an immoral thing. How dare you expect others to forgive others? Here's what one professor was told by the psychology chair of his department. He was trying to teach a model of forgiveness, not necessarily scripturally, but we should forgive others. Here's what he was told. He was told forgiveness, it victimizes. When people are treated cruelly by others and you come along and tell them they must forgive, you have introduced a new hurt to their hurting heart. And so forgiveness becomes a way that people with abuse power maintain their power. And as as I said before, in the cheap grace model, if it's only a matter of saying the words and nothing is done, then he's right. If, if there is no appeal to justice, if there is nothing to be done, then it can prey upon that victim. 
But this no grace option, no forgiveness, is not the answer either. Because to do so, we have to close our Bibles and set them aside. We have to get rid of all of the teaching of God's grace, of His mercy, of His forgiveness, of His favor on those who don't deserve it. Is that really what we want? Is that really the path forward to say, I can never forgive somebody else? Because we, we, we forget every model in forgiveness. So that leaves us with another model that I believe is the biblical one, and I describe it as costly grace. Costly grace. So where is God in all of this? The three models I presented before, God is muted from the situation. When we embrace costly grace, it begins with the vertical. It begins with God's forgiveness of us, and that allows us to extend grace to others. But here's the amazing thing. When we offer this costly grace, when we allow it to change us inside, or excuse me, when we think of God's grace for us and we desire to give it to others, it not only changes that person and others, it actually changes us. We are radically different than before. A summary uh, from Keller's book as well, he says this, we can't love without forgiveness, but we can't live without it either. We can't live before God and before others in a way that honors them if we do not choose this costly grace. So where do we see this happening? Where is the model for us to, by God's grace, pursue costly grace to others? Because if it's all about us, if we're honest, if it's all about mustering up the right emotions, the right feeling, the right disposition towards the person who's done and said it, it's never going to come, or it's not going to come in the way that honors God. So where can we see this model? And I'd like for us to look at Jesus' death, as we remembered here, that in the cross, we see God's commitment to justice and forgiveness. Both of these are seen in the cross. In the suffering and death of Jesus, he combines his forgiveness of sin with the requirements of his justice. So how can God deal justly and forgive? Earlier in our series in Romans, we looked at this in Romans 5. I'll just read it quickly here. It says, For while we were still helpless, while we were the slave who is sinning against God, who's sinning against others by demanding things from them, while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love to us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still slaves, while we were an offense to God, Christ died for us. For while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we would be saved by his life. And so Romans 5 here tells us that we stand in a place of judgment. We deserve God's just punishment on our sin. That reconciliation and eternal life are only possible through Jesus' death, through him absorbing the cost and taking the loss for taking the penalty. And here we see that justice and forgiveness are seen in the cross. So Keller says, God himself comes and takes the punishment and pays the debt that we should have paid. The king becomes the slave. If we could extend out Jesus' story a little bit, the king offered forgiveness to the slave. But really in the cross, here's what we can imagine. The king takes off his priestly robe that's costly, that's beautiful. He gives it to the slave and says, here you go. Now, I want your tunic, okay, that you wash toilets in or whatever. I want that. I'm going to put this on me, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to deal with your punishment. I'm going to pay that off so that you don't have to go to that debtor's prison, so that you can't, uh, so that you don't have to pay that off because you never could. And so the king becomes the slave. And so in the death of Jesus, we see justice, we see forgiveness, But here's another reality or aspect from this. In the cross, a victim's experience of injustice and desire for vindication uh, vindication is upheld. If you think of it this way, in the cross, we can see how God cares about justice. We can see how God cares about sin and about harm. And so we are right to pursue justice on earth. So for those who maybe have been hurt by that cheap grace model, which says just say words, just do things, but people didn't care about protecting or doing something about it, please see in the cross of Christ, God cares about wrong. God cares about injustice. 
God cares when people use and abuse power. But here's the thing. This desire for vindication, this desire for justice, when it's pursued as it ought to be, it's actually the best chance of the perpetrator for him or her to confess of their sin. Because justice brought to them that can challenges them and confronts them of their sin is an opportunity for them to turn and to trust and to believe in Christ. It's actually an unloving thing to not confront with justice. And so this appeal to justice on earth serves as a picture of God's final justice. Because here's the thing, we are never going to get perfect justice in this life. We are never, we are never going to see it played out exactly as it ought to be but we can make an appeal to God's final justice, that he is going to deal with it. And so for the victim, for those who have been wronged and harmed, you can see God's heart, that he cares. But then thirdly, Jesus' costly death ought to move us beyond this, that because of the cross, a victim can extend biblical forgiveness. We see that God cares about justice. He cares about forgiveness. We see how he dealt with that in the cross, and that we can feel seen and heard because Jesus has dealt with it. But we don't stop there. It actually moves us to forgiveness. There's a story um, or, or a, a, an instant incident that happened several years ago while I was living in the state of Michigan in which a doctor abused dozens and dozens and dozens of, of gymnasts who came into his care. Maybe you heard the story. It happened um, connected in the middle of Michigan there. Over years and years and years, covered it up, a lot of parents didn't know. Those who did spoke up, speak up to authorities, documented all of the people who should have said and done something, didn't do it, didn't speak up, they didn't act. It was a horrible failure of justice. And, and you think about an incident like that. The first um, girl who came forward named Rachel, she put herself forward as, as the first one to actually testify. And you think of, of something like that in which not only was wrong done, but it was covered up and justice didn't happen for years and years and years. And you think, how in the world could somebody like that forgive? How in the world could they respond in a way that would actually offer forgiveness to somebody else? But Rachel was not just um, a gymnast and not just a lawyer now, but she was a Christian. And she came to grapple with these really hard truths of justice and forgiveness. And actually, I have a letter that she, or an article that she and her husband wrote back there on justice and forgiveness, if you want to read the full article. But here's what she said directly in court. It was a 40-minute testimony. You look it up on YouTube. But to this doctor who abused her, listen to what she said. Because of the cross, she said, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than my forgiveness, but I'm willing to extend it to you. So you see what she did? She framed it, not vengeance, not jealousy, not me lashing out at you. You need God's forgiveness. And I pray that the justice that you're finally getting, which is life in prison, will be the means of bringing you to reconciliation to God. She said, you need God's forgiveness far more than you need mine as the victim. And yet, I am willing to give that to you. How is that possible? How can somebody respond that way? Our culture has no framework for that. And in fact, in this and in the Me Too movement and so many things, People, as I said, will actually say that forgiveness is immoral. How dare you offer forgiveness? So it's not coming from voices outside. She came to realize God's forgiveness of her in the cross. And so I want to end here with some implications and then a pathway to forgiveness. We'll wrap up our time here. How do we experience this costly grace, this upward forgiveness of us, and let it change in how we interact with others, especially those who've harmed us? Here's the first implication about justice and forgiveness, and that is harm and abuse must never be tolerated. We said speaking the truth is important when confronting evil, and that is true. Scripture is full of commands to defend the weak and vulnerable, those who cannot defend themselves. Psalm 82, 3, defend the weak and fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and oppressed. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, that is God. The New Testament doesn't weaken it either. One of Jesus' most powerful parables of love and kindness to love a neighbor involved two different ethnicities. It was a Jewish man who was harmed, who was beaten on the side of the road, and every Jew who walked by had no time for him, had no care for him. But who was it that took the time to see and to care, to move towards him in love? A Samaritan. 
the enemy, the one who shouldn't do it, the one who has been told all his life he should do no kindness to a Jew, and vice versa. And yet Jesus is showing here that the vulnerable ought to be cared for. Romans 13 says that government's role is to punish evil and uphold justice. So we do right to appeal to justice. And finally, James 1, it says this, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their distress. So tolerating harm and abuse ought not to be um, tolerated in the church, that we ought not to cover up, to excuse away. And secondly, and related, is that we must not turn a blind eye to sin. It is not loving or kind to excuse away or to, to, to push away harm and wrong that is done, to cover sin or to excuse it. Not only is it not wrong to those who have been harmed, but it's not wrong or it's not right for the offender because he or she will not be able to confront their sin. So don't turn a blind eye to sin. And then thirdly, I'd say love a habitual offender wisely. So, so a question that comes up is, again, do I just take it? What about domestic abuse? What about assault? What about times of being vulnerable? We must balance Jesus' statement that at times we turn the other cheek, that we refuse to give insult for insult. But we must balance that with times in Scripture in which we appeal to legal authorities. Paul, for example, ran from danger. Okay? He hid in a basket to get away. He appealed to legal authorities. He appealed to his Roman citizenship at times. And he defended the well-being of others in his letters and in his actions. And so we must balance those things, but we must love a habitual offender wisely. And for more on this, um, I'd refer you to that article I said in the back. There's another one there about uh, forgiveness and how we can do this. So we must be wise in how we pursue justice and forgiveness. But then I'd like to bring it home here, a practical pathway to forgiveness. How can we take all this truth, the vertical, the internal, the horizontal, and do something with it? Well, first of all, if you um, have wronged someone, the focus of today's message was mostly on those who've been offended, but I think it'd be a failure if we didn't talk about the one who is doing the wrong. And you see up here some application. That is to embrace the truth. Don't excuse or justify what you've done. Don't, don't blame away the harm that you've said in your words and in your actions. If you are not willing to come to grips with the truth, you're not ever going to grow and change. The second is to embrace the gospel. If you're a child of God, he offers forgiveness and grace. If you're not a child of, of God, this biblical forgiveness is going to be foreign to you, that it's not going to work up in your heart and in your soul. You must bow the knee to Christ. The new song that we sing offers encouragement. Are you hopeless? Are you guilty? Are you caught in shame for all your sin? God pursues you to forgive you. Rest in him. So rest in the gospel. Confess it to God and to those you've offended. Ask for forgiveness. Be patient in that. Humbly receive the consequences of your choices. You know a picture of if you're actually sorry, if you're actually wanting to repent and change, you're willing to take the consequences of what you've done. And then finally, grow in obedience of love. It takes time. It takes a long time to build back trust and, and to work love towards others. So if you have wronged another, take these steps to honor God. If you have witnessed wrong, so you say, I wasn't the one done wrong, but I was close enough to the situation to see or to hear or to know, First of all, ensure their safety. If someone is in harm's way, seek every effort you can in justice to seek their safety so that harm doesn't happen. But secondly, I'd say in your move to them, lead with comfort. Often in that moment, we can get to anger, we can get to forgiveness, we can get to all the wrong emotions, but in that moment, they need love. They need affirmation that you are there with them, that God knows. You need to listen, 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 and be patient. And then, as you have opportunity, you bring God's truth to them. You bring truth to them. You stand by them. You stand ready to be one of the one or two witnesses that, that can challenge the, the person there. Be an advocate with them. Show up for them. Cry on their shoulder. Let them cry on your shoulder. Have those long talks on the phone at, at midnight when they can't sleep. Show up for that court date to, to be there for them. Take them coffee on the anniversary of their assault or of their divorce or whatever happened. Show up for them. Pray for God's mercy and grace for them in the long road ahead and for you to know how to help them. And then lastly, if you've been wronged by someone, if you are the one who's been offended, first of all, rest in God's promises. Rest in promises from God's word like, you are made in my image. You have a, a special place in my heart because God made you that you are not a mistake, that God 
did not make a mistake when he created you, when he allowed that thing to happen in your life, God can use it for your good, that you have value in Christ. If you're a child of God, God says you belong to the greatest family in the whole world. Your family might be a wreck. They might have disowned you. You might not have that that great nuclear family that you've always wanted, but you have a family. You have God's family. That you have spiritual gifts. You have gifts to serve others, to, to move out to others in love. And you have hope for the future. It's not always going to be this way. And you have hope. So rest in God's promises. Choose to forgive. Romans 12 is an awesome passage for what do you do in the middle of this? What is your disposition? We're not going to read the passage. But, but Paul says, pray for the offender. Pray for him or her. Don't curse them. Don't seek revenge. Don't repay evil for evil. Seek peace. Paul says, if possible, live at peace with all people. Don't unnecessarily rile things up or seek grievances. And then finally, let God be judge. Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I thinking again, the lyrics to this song, are you waiting in your sorrows for this broken world to heal? And many of you say, I don't know if I'm ever going to fully be able to heal. I don't know if it's ever going to be right in my heart. I don't know if I can ever fully get past all of these things. But rest in God. He is coming, soon returning. Rest in him and rest in his final justice. And then I just add, don't do it alone. Include justice, include the government, include those who are there to protect, include other believers. I'd like to end with a story. I know my time's really far gone here. Hope you'll bear with me. I want to end with a story, this lady here, if you've ever heard or read her, Corrie ten Boom, in the book, The Hiding Place. And if, if you want to know how God can work this in people's heart, read these extreme, sorrowful examples and rejoice in God's grace. She worked against the Nazis in World War II, hiding Jews in her home. When she was caught, she was sent to a concentration camp. She was stripped of her dignity. She saw her father and her sister Betsy die in front of her. She suffered more at the hands of these wicked, cruel people than we could ever possibly imagine. But the war ended. She moved on with her life. She wrote things. She spoke. She, she had a speaking tour in Europe. And this is, uh, all that she endured is why her encounter with forgiveness is so memorable. This is what she wrote. I was at a church service in Munich. It was at a church service that I saw him, the former SS officer who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room of mocking men, the nakedness and the shame, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's, her sister's, uh, blanched pale face, This man came up to me as the church service ended, as people were trickling out. This man was beaming and and bowing. He came and said, How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. So he's appealing to the vertical here, right? His hand was thrust out to shake mine as he ended. And I, who preach so often to these people, The need to forgive could only keep my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw that they were sinful. Jesus had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? The Lord Jesus, I prayed. Lord Jesus, I prayed. Forgive me and help me to forgive. See the internal working in her? I know what I need to do. I don't know if I can do it. Help me to do it. She goes on. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity or love. And so again, I breathe a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I reached out and took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, all along my arm, through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart, a love sprang for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. You see the vertical going to the internal that leads to the horizontal. And here's how she ended. I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that this world, uh, that the healing hinges on, but his. Let me say it one more time. It's not our forgiveness any more than it is our forgiveness that this world needs, but it's his love. It's his forgiveness. And she ends with this. When he tells us, that is God, to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love 
itself. As we reflect on what he's done, as we ask by God's grace to work this forgiveness in us that we could never muster up on our own, he gives us the love that we need to extend to others. And so, as we have said, forgiven children, forgive. Let's pray. God, we are so unworthy of your, fi- your favor and kindness. We thank you, God, that you have given us these truths, that you've modeled it, that you've demonstrated your love for justice and for what is right, and also for forgiveness. God, we are so inadequate to, to muster up love and kindness and favor for others, but you ask us to make that attempt. As we do that, God, give us the grace. Give us the strength we need. Give us the power to be able to say those words, I forgive you. Not because you deserve it, not because I am so great, but because God is good, because he gives me the love I need to give you. So God, help us to have the grace to do it, to obey, to apply this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.